Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Wurzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. You've heard it on the podcast so many times and I'm gonna say it again. Relationships are everything in real estate. At Dovehill Capital Management, one of the most interesting things about our track record is that the majority of the deals have come to us off market or lightly marketed. So we had this innovative idea a few years ago, and that was to launch the Deal Rewards Program at Dovehill Capital Management. If you want to learn more, you can go to www.dovehillcoes.com. Again, that's www.dovehillcoes.com. You click on the little Deal Rewards icon and you can sign up. And if you have a deal that's off market, that somehow came to you, maybe you're working on a deal, you're trying to put it together, bring it to us because we can help you get that deal done through our deal rewards program. We offer industry-leading incentives. We'll allow you to co-invest in the deal. We could come up with another interesting structure to allow you to do the deal with us. The deal rewards program is incredibly unique and will give you an opportunity to do a deal with Dove Hill either in a completely passive position, or maybe you're taking a more active role. Either way, please check out the Deal Rewards Program at www.dovehillcoes.com. Appreciate it. And this is how we've been getting our flow. The team at Wurzak Hotel Group is just firing on all cylinders right now. So I'm very, very excited and proud to announce that we now have a third-party management program where we are managing hotels for other owners. We used to just manage hotels for ourselves, and now we've made some tremendous forward investments in people, our team, technology, accounting, finance, and most importantly, culture, and we are prepared to bring that out to everyone. Our team is experienced in managing independent hotels, branded hotels. We have focused heavily on boutique, lifestyle, and experiential hotels, and we're ready to manage a hotel for you. So if you are interested, if you wanna learn more about what we do and how we can help your hotel, please visit wurzakhotels.com. Hey, everyone. Excited to do this live webinar today. We're going to be talking about waterfalls, mistakes we've made at Dove Hill, how we structure our waterfalls at Dove Hill. But then I'm also going to give you an overview of a lot of different types of investing waterfalls today. So if you are a GP putting together deals, if you're someone who is thinking about putting together a deal, or if you're an LP who wants to understand the different waterfalls and how they impact returns, then this is going to be something you're going to want to tune into. One of the things that I wanted to highlight to you right from the beginning is that I'm trying to build an amazing hospitality investing community because throughout my career, the biggest impacts and gains that I've had have come through my friends, my mentors, colleagues, different people in the industry. And I think we're all going to be better if we can help each other. So in the chat, I put in a link to the community and you'll get access to the general discussion area where you can you know, ask questions about a deal. You can ask me questions. You can talk to your fellow peers about something you're thinking about. You can ask someone about a location, test a strategy idea. It's really open to a lot of different topics. And if you're looking for more access to me and more access to the community, we have two additional platforms, which you can check out. Just go to jakewurzak.com. And that is something called The Boardroom. And in The Boardroom, we're going to do 10 Zoom calls throughout the entire year, much like this. I'm doing this one open for everyone, but in the future, they're going to be a little bit more exclusive. And then the masterclass gets twice monthly Zoom calls direct access to me. We'll do deal breakdowns. You can send me your deal. I'll break it down for you. I'll answer questions. It's exciting. But if you want to get a taste of the community and you want to add value, then I would encourage you to check it out. So I don't know where everyone's at. So I want to just talk about what a promoted interest is from the start. We're going to go very basic and then I will amp it up pretty quick. So in real estate and in other investments, you have someone that's typically called a sponsor. In the olden days, they were called a promoter of the deal. This is the one putting the deal together, doing the work. 
And as compensation for that work and for a significant win, they get what's called a promote or some people, if you want to be really fancy, carried interest. Maybe it's a success fee. These are all really the same things. But for today's conversation, I'm going to speak in terms of promote. And the GP or the sponsor is paid the promote and the LP, the people putting the capital in the deal are the ones paying the promote. And a promote is paid basically for success. Now, I've seen promote structures that are kind of not really paid on success, but we're going to go into that. In most cases, they are paid because things went well in the deal. So now that you understand a promote, let's talk about what a waterfall is. I'm sure you've heard the term waterfall thrown around before. If you haven't, that's okay. I'm going to explain what it is right now. A waterfall basically details out how money in an investment, either cash flow or money from a capital event, which would be a sale or refinance, is distributed annually and at a capital event. Why is it called a waterfall? Because all the money, 100% of that money, comes in at the top and then it waterfalls down and splashes and hits different parties based on different hurdles or different things happening. The most simple waterfall might go something like this. If $100 went into a deal and that deal was successful and the deal was sold for $150, well, a typical waterfall could be the capital gets paid back, it's $100, and then the $50 of profit is split 75% to the capital, the one putting up the capital, and 25% to the sponsor. So in that case, you have $50 of profit and it's going 25% would be 12 and a half. Okay, at least I got it right. Just double checking. So 12.5% is going to go to the sponsor and the balance is going to go to the capital. That's like the basic, basic, simple waterfall. Now, there are ways to amp up that waterfall significantly. And different things can happen based on how successful the deal is. So you can have different tiers in that waterfall based on how much of a return the capital, the LPs get, maybe the sponsor gets an even greater percentage of the upside. So if a deal is a 20% return, maybe the sponsor gets 30%. If the deal is a 40% return, maybe the sponsor gets 50%. And if the deal is just a 8% return, maybe the sponsor gets 20%, 15%. So a waterfall would go through those various different levels. And after each level, maybe the sponsor is getting a different percentage of the return. Now, let's talk about how to build a a waterfall because I talked about there's two different types of distributions in my mind. You have cash flow distributions and distributions from a capital event. So capital event, again, is sale or refinance. And theoretically, cash flow distributions would come from the annual cash flow. In all of our deals, and I advocate for a lot of people, I think distributions should be split or should be structured differently for cash flow versus a capital event. So at a cash flow, you may have a preferred return. You may not. A preferred return would be a percentage return that goes to the investor first before the sponsor would participate in any of that upside. So let's take an an example. Let's say a deal returned in a given year, 10% cash on cash return. Well, if the deal was structured with an 8% preferred return to the investor, then what would happen is the investor would get the first 8%, the first $8, let's say. Then those $2 of extra profit would be split 80-20. 80% to the investor, 20% to the sponsor. So those $2.40 would go to the sponsor. 
and the balance would go to the investor. And that's a very common way to do a waterfall on cash flow. And keep in mind, when you're doing a waterfall on cash flow, the sponsor may be participating before the investor has gotten all their money back. Now, you might be asking, like, why would an investor agree with or agree to that? Why does that make any sense? Why is the sponsor participating in upside when this is just cash flow? Maybe there's not like actual upside that's happened yet. It's just cash flow is a good year, whatever it is. Well, I think there's value in keeping a sponsor motivated and focused on your deal. And everyone wants to think about their reputation and be a good partner, but money is a very good motivator. And it's just pure capitalism. If you're a sponsor and you're getting paid on one deal and not paid on another deal, maybe you're likely to spend more time on the one that you're getting paid. Now, maybe not. There could be other reasons, different scenarios involved. But it's a very, very big carrot to incentivize the sponsor to make the deal a success when they're not having to wait three, four, or five years down the road to participate in a little bit of cash flow. And just that little bit of cash flow might be meaningful to make the sponsor feel a little bit more invested in the deal. You can also do it where there's no preferred return. So literally, all the cash flow is just split. Maybe it's split 80-20. So someone put up 100% of the capital, they're only getting 80% of the cash flow back, and someone else is getting, the sponsor is getting 20%. That's perfectly fine. But there's no real preferred return. There's no hurdle that the deal has to achieve. So if the deal is underperforming or not achieving the returns that everyone expected, then if you structure with no pref, then the sponsor, the one that put together the deal, could actually be getting paid a promote. And maybe that's not something you want. Maybe it is something you want. I'm not advocating one way or another. I'm just giving you a idea to think about. The next is on a capital event. And this is either in a sale or refinance. Typically in a refinance, you're not going to get all your capital back, but you're going to get a big portion of it back. So maybe the sponsor has an opportunity to participate in a promote at a capital event, like a refinance, but most likely it's going to come at the sale. And at the sale, there's like the cash flow event, different ways to do it. You could do it on an IRR basis. You can do it on a minimum multiple basis. You could do it on a preferred return. You can have multiple tiered splits based on different return levels. Or you could just have no split, or sorry, no pref, no return, just once the capital gets its money back, then there's a split. In the old days or back in the day, this would be called like a sweat equity interest. So once the money gets paid back, then the sweat equity kicks in with no return and you're sharing some of the upside. My basic philosophy for all waterfalls, when you're raising capital from family offices or high net worth investors, is simple, is always better. And the philosophy that I have lived by for many years is keep your waterfalls simple, keep them consistent, keep them fair, and structure them in a way that will work for the long term. When I say long term, I mean not only the long term Uh, the term of the investment, but also the term of the relationship. You want to be doing deals with people for a long time, or at least I do. I don't want to be meeting new investors each time I'm doing a deal. I want repeat investors. So I want to set up capital structures that are fair for both sides for the long term. This also means I don't want to get into a deal just because I want to meet a new investor and set up a capital structure where there's really no incentive for me as the sponsor. Because this is my business. Real estate is my business, and I am running an investment manager's business. I need to have upside. If I don't have upside, then what's the point of doing it? If I don't have profit in it for me, then what's the point of doing it? And a lot of times when you're trying to raise capital, you're going to sacrifice some of your waterfall to get a partner in the deal. But my advice would be just make sure the structure works for the long term. Or if you're giving someone a break on the first one, have the conversation what the second one would look like and ensure that they go there the second time. If they don't go there the second time, they negotiate again, then maybe that's not the right partner for you. But you can cut a special deal for for someone in the front end. But 
make sure on deal number two, you kind of have the framework laid out for what that's going to be. So let me go through some advanced structures at a capital event. So if it's IRR-based, this means the internal rate of return. So what effectively this means, like in the most simplest math terms, is that the investor has has to get all of their money back plus some sort of compounded rate of return. For the example here, I'm just going to use 10%. So a 10 IRR means the investor has to get all their money back, including what they've previously received from cash flow. And that return on an annual basis needs to be 10% compounded. Now, it might not all come from cash flow. In fact, maybe a lot of it comes at the back end at the sale. But the totality of that return has to be 10% per year compounded plus your money back. That's like the simplest way to to think about IRR. But if you're using Excel, you can probably use Google and dump it in there. There's IRR calculators and and you'll find what that is. The other way to think about a preferred return is in a simple basis without compounding. So what a simple preferred return means is that the preferred return doesn't compound. So using the example of 10, if it's a 10% preferred simple return, then on each year, the deal just has to yield, let's say, $10 or a 10% cash on cash yield without compounding. So if it was 10% on a $100 investment, it would be $10 year one, $10 year two, $10 year three, $10 year four, $10 year five. That's just a simple return. There's no compounding component to that. The other thing that I think is important is whether the return is cumulative or non-cumulative. Cumulative means that you add up the years. And if it's a 10% return, you need to hit 10% each year. Some years might be higher, some year might be one year might be 12, the other year might be eight, but on the cumulative, it adds up to 10% a year. Non-cumulative is each year stands on its own. And we'll talk about some of the advanced strategies and different structures you can use there in a moment. Back to what happens at a capital event. What also could happen in a capital event is a multiple tiered structure where you're going down the waterfall and the splits increase to the favor of the sponsor based on an increase in the return. So for example, maybe what happens is first, all the capital gets paid back, then all the profit is treated as follows. A 0% to 10% IRR goes 80% to the investor and 20% to the sponsor. From 10% to 14%, maybe it goes 70% to the investor and 30% to the sponsor. Maybe from 14% to 18%, it goes 65% to the investor and 35% to the sponsor. And then maybe above, where am I at? 18%, maybe it goes 50-50 or might even now flip where this this is such a great deal. The sponsor is getting 60% and the investor is getting 14% of all the residual left over after an 18% return, whether that's IRR, simple return, all these are negotiable points. So this is where I want to get into some of the nuances. We talked about cumulative and non-cumulative. Let's talk about compounding and non-compounding again. This is also referred to as simple and compounding. Again, a simple return is just each year On a $100 investment, if it's a 10 simple return, you just have to get $10 each year. It could be $8 one year, $12 the next year. It has to add up to 10%. On a compounding basis, well, there's a compounding effect to it. And you have to successively increase above $10 every year in order to meet your compounded return obligation. So the bar to hit a compounded return is higher than the bar to hit a simple return. That doesn't mean you should necessarily structure your deals compounded or simple. It's just the math. 
Another advanced topic I want to talk about is a catch-up. And I think as a catch-up is a great feature for both an LP and a GP in a deal because it creates a tremendous amount of alignment. So in a catch-up, what happens at a capital event, let's just say, is the capital gets all their money back, let's just say 100%, and maybe there's a preferred return of 8%. So if it's a $100 investment, the next $8 goes to the investor. Let's just say there was only $10 of profit in this deal. So you invested $100, you get back $110. And you're in it for one year, there's an 8% preferred return. Well, what happens is the $100 gets paid back to the investor. The 8% is paid to the investor as the preferred return. But then that $2, what happens with that? Let's just say above an 8%, the split is 80% to the investor and 20% to the sponsor. If you don't have a catch-up, that $2 is split $0.40 to the sponsor and $1.60 to the investor. Now, let's just say there is a catch-up. And the idea of a catch-up is that it puts the sponsor, it equalizes the distributions as if the sponsor was getting a promote or a piece of the interest from dollar zero of profit. Okay. So let me try and explain that because that might not be that intuitive. So in the same deal where the investor got the 8% and now we're figuring out what to do with the excess $2, you look at it, you look at the sponsor, what the sponsor gets, because he gets the next dollar if there's a catch up based upon getting 20% of $8. So in this instance, the sponsor would get 20% from zero to $8. So the sponsor now is getting the next $1.60 and the investor is getting 40 cents. Okay. So let's slow down. I know this is a lot of numbers. Sponsor makes, or sorry, the investor makes a $100 investment. We're in the deal for one year. There's a $10 of profit and the preferred return was $8. Let's look at it both ways now, with a catch-up, without a catch-up. Without a catch-up, after the investor gets the $8 preferred return, there's an 80-20 split, 80% in favor of the investor, 20% in favor of the sponsor. So the sponsor is going to get 40 cents and the investor is going to get $1.60. And that's how it's going to be. And then there's no more money left, and that's just it. Now, let's just say there's a full catch-up. A full catch-up means once the investor gets that preferred return, the sponsor gets 100% of the money until the sponsor has received 20% of the distribution so far. So the distribution so far was that $8 preferred return. So again, there's $2 left. So now the sponsor is going to receive 20% of that $8 first before the investor gets anything after that $8 return. So the sponsor is getting that $1.60. So he's basically treated as if he participated from $0. So he got the $1.60 and now there's only 40 cents left. So the investor gets the 40 cents. That is a full catch-up. And I think full catch-ups are great because it creates a tremendous amount of incentive and alignment because it gives the investor a preferred return, but then it says, hey, for all the sponsor's hard work, you get the preferred return, but now let him catch up as if he would have been able to participate in the split from dollar zero because he made this deal a big success. Now, the deal returned 10% in a year. Maybe that's good. Maybe that's bad. But imagine extrapolating that out over multiple years and you could see what happens in a catch-up. There's also gatekeepers. And this happens a lot with institutional private equity firms. And oftentimes, institutional private equity firms have waterfalls that are completely IRR-based. There's 
not going to be simple returns. It's always going to be compounding for these guys. Why? Because their performance KPIs and metrics for their own investors are compound-based. That all started in the 90s. That's just how it is. So all these big institutions, pensions, they're looking for a compounded return from the big Starwood, Blackstone of the world. And that means that Starwood and Blackstone need our waterfall structure to have a compounding feature with it. They're also going to put a minimum multiple. Why do you need a minimum multiple? Well, typical private equity has an investment period in their fund. Maybe it's two years, maybe it's three years. They need to maximize returns throughout the investment period and throughout the life of the fund. And they're not interested in doing a deal for a 50 IRR, let's say, if they're just going to be in that deal for three months and they're going to have a low multiple as a result of being in for that short time duration. So they hedge their bets and they say, well, we want to hit our IRR, but we need that multiple too. So we're going to have minimum multiple. So to the extent that you might hit the IRRs and want to participate in the waterfall and you as the sponsor want to get paid, if we're not getting this minimum multiple, then you're not getting any bit of our returns. So this incentivizes the sponsor to have longer success over the deal and to try and figure out ways to keep that money out there earning a very high rate of return. And that's the purpose of the minimum multiple. The last concept I want to talk about is crystallization. And if you if you listen to the podcast, then you should go back and listen to Casey Lynch, who's the CEO of Roundhouse, an amazing multifamily owner, operator, and developer based in Boise. And he really talks about crystallization when, when he talks about how he structures deals. And he uses it mostly for development deals. And I actually think that's the best time to structure a crystallization. But depending on flexibility, you may want to put the optionality of crystallization in a deal, even if it's an acquisition deal. Here's how crystallization comes in. It basically says, hey, we don't want to sell the asset, but we want to hold it for long term and we want you to be aligned and we know you are the sponsor, you're a merchant builder, you want to flip in and out of deals, but that's not really what we want. So why don't we create a structure where you can get ownership, but we're not forced to sell the asset? And that's really the purpose of crystallization. So let's say you develop a deal. A lot of developers, they develop something, then they sell it. Well, let's just say your partner doesn't want to sell. They want to own it for the long term. Crystallization is perfect for that. So you develop the deal, you stabilize the asset, and then you have a couple appraisals done. And then you say, okay, well, we don't want to sell it right now. We think it's a great market. It's a great asset. We want to hold it long term. But we've created a tremendous amount of value in the asset. So we're going to crystallize the deal. And you as the sponsor said, okay, I'm interested in doing that. That's what our agreement allows for. Let's do it. So the way you do it is you look at your valuations and the appraisals and you run your waterfall. It could have been a variety of waterfalls that we just talked about. And you look at what the sponsor would have gotten as a percentage of the total cash flow after the investors paid back in that waterfall. So let's just say, keeping it simple, that the sponsor would have gotten 20% of the profits. Well, instead of selling the deal, you can just reallocate the capital accounts in the deal and give the sponsor 20% of the deal. And that's what crystallization is. It's looking at a point in time and basically locking in the promoted interest and fixing that for perpetuity until the end of time, until when you sell the asset. And this is a great structure for people who want to hold an asset long-term and sponsors who want to also earn a significant income, you know, building, doing deals. And I think it's a gr- it's a very important thing to feature to build in the beginning because it's going to be very hard to negotiate at the end of the day, even if your investor wants to stay in the deal. It's best to do it at the beginning and you should do it even if you're thinking about selling 
early because a lot of things can happen in an investment. And the more flexibility and the more things that are thought about in advance, I think avoids conflict in the future and just makes everyone feel good. All right, next I wanna talk about how we structure our deals. I'll go through this pretty quickly, but basically for all of our single purpose investments, we structure our deals where the distributions for cash flows are different than the distributions at a capital event. And we structure the distributions at cash flow so that there's a preferred return for our investors, but there's a possibility for us as a sponsor to participate in cash flow along the way. And as I mentioned, this is important for us because it keeps us motivated in the deal. It keeps us excited. Now, sure, I have my reputation and I want to do good by my investors. But again, participating in a deal in the cash flows feels great and is great and is a huge motivating factor. I don't care what you say. If you're an LP, you should really listen to this. It works. I'm telling you, it works. So we take a split on the cash flow, typically after a preferred return. Oftentimes for us, that preferred return is simple. Many times that preferred return is non-cumulative. Now you might ask, why would an investor agree to a non-cumulative return? There could be an event that is completely out of the sponsor's control. Could be an event like COVID could be an event like a flood or a fire or something like that, where there might not be cash flow for a period of time. And if there's no cash flow for a period of time, then you could fall behind on your preferred return hurdle. And if you fall behind in your preferred return hurdle for a reason that may be out of your control, the sponsor's control, then you're kind of out of the promote, you're out of the money. And again, we're talking about incentives, it matters. So a lot of our deals are structured non-cumulative, but we've had done deals where we've structured them cumulative too. It just depends. Next, at a capital event, what happens? Well, typically in our deals, we've done it two ways, depending on the deal, depending on the asset class, depending on the strategy, but we give the investors all their money back. And we don't really include the cash flows in that. It's like, what's your principle? If you put in $100, you get $100 back, regardless of of the cash you put in. And then there's a split after that. Sometimes there is a preferred return. Sometimes it's compounded. Sometimes it's based on a minimum multiple. But that is how we structure our deals. For our Deals with institutional partners, we oftentimes have multiple tiers. I don't like doing more than like, never more than three tiers, but two is is typically the sweet spot. But all of our deals with high net worth investors and family offices, they all have one tier. And sure, I might be leaving promote on the table, but I feel like that's, it's just simpler to explain to people and it builds long-term relationships and really creates an alignment. And I'm looking at hitting doubles, triples, throughout my career and having a very long career, as opposed to hitting a quadruple, doing nothing or losing money for a few years, then maybe 10 years later hitting another, you know, grand slam. It's just not how I want to do it. I want to have consistent cash flows, consistent returns, and build great quality real estate in great markets for the long term. And when we acquire things, we want to pay a reasonable price for for those assets. And I think the waterfall structure needs to align with what the goals and objectives are of the investment. So that might mean you have a minimum multiple. It might mean you don't have a minimum multiple. It might mean you based off IRR. I actually think if you're a long-term holder, IRRs are not the best way to incentivize sponsors. And Minimum multiples might be the best way to incentivize sponsors or simple returns, frankly. A lot of the family offices that we speak with don't always think in terms of compounded IRRs. They think very differently. That's a very private equity institutional model. Nothing wrong with it, but it's important to structure your deals for the people that are going to be in your deals. Let's talk about some of the mistakes that we've made. I think we've made mistakes making deals overly complicated and having multiple tiers in a waterfall when we probably didn't need to do that. 
Now, my first deal, we had multiple tiers. It was tremendously successful. And it was very profitable for me as the sponsor and for the investors. But I think it was a little complicated. And having to explain that to investors when you're raising capital, it's just like a lot of talking that you have to do. If you have like super sophisticated investors, sure, they're going to understand it. But nonetheless, it's just like a lot of questions to be fielding when you're raising capital about structure. And like, those are the worst kinds of questions. The best kinds of questions are questions about the deal. If you're talking about the structure a lot, it's just frustrating. It's challenging. It just opens the can of worms for a lot of other objections. And I like to keep it simple. The other thing is the cumulative pref. You know, we've had deals where, you know, COVID would be an example where because we had a cumulative pref where we had to hit the pref every year. Well, let's just say you closed a hotel over COVID. You know, that's really not our fault. You know, certainly it's not the investor's fault either, but I still feel there's value and merit in keeping the sponsor incentivized. And if you're going to hold something over a long term, you have to think that there's going to be bumps along the way. And the other thing is like setting a pref. You know, maybe you set your prefs too high because. 6% 6% like is a pretty good return, you know, in a world of like very high interest rates. Maybe you can compare it to treasuries and whatever, but as we're seeing now, that's very volatile and you don't have some of the depreciation tax benefits of real estate. You don't have the hard asset benefits and you certainly don't have the appreciation potential like you do with real estate. And just because I have a pref at 6 percent or seven percent does not mean that's my goal. Like my goal in real estate is to make a lot of money. Like just setting my goal at a seven percent return is not what we're trying to do here. We're not working this hard to just get a seven percent return. So don't get too fixated on that pref. We try and think about that as like, I don't know, maybe like what's the risk free rate? Like what's the and like add on a little bit on top of that, you know, what is the risk in the deal? And also, what are the projected cash-on-cash returns for the deal? And I think your pref should somewhat align to that so that you can incentivize the sponsor to be in the money. Like, I'm a big proponent of that. Sorry, I'm biased, but I'm the sponsor. But yeah, you should be in the money because you're going to work harder for the deal. Another thing, another mistake we've made, and I don't know if this is a mistake, but you know, when you have IRRs on a construction deal and you don't have the ability to crystallize promote and you have to be building something, you know, burning down that IRR through the construction period and then, you know, stabilizing the hotel, it really adds up. And if you're waiting until you're selling the asset or you're refinancing the asset, a lot can happen and not having the ability to crystallize the promote upon stabilization could end up hurting you and could be a disincentive for sure if you're an LP looking at it from the sponsors perspective. I want to take some Q&A. So if we have any Q&A, raise your hand. Yeah, just quick question for you, by the way, Fort Lauderdale, your neighbor here, right on Las Olas. So appreciate you taking the time to have this call today. I'm just curious as far as I know, I'm, I've seen that you're looking to raise about $30 million this year for a new fund, another investment opportunity. Just curious, the split of institutional to high net worth individuals that you plan to, you know, get invested into that opportunity and what you typically you've seen in the past that works best for you and your company. So that fund is going to be all family offices and high net worth investors. We found that there, there could be a foundation in there, but in my experience, it's very rare unless it's a fund of fun where you get like a institutional real estate investor to invest in another real estate investor's fund. So it's going to be primarily high net worth investors. And in that deal, we have a preferred return and a 75-25 split. So it's pretty simple. It's going to be commingled across a bunch of assets, but that is the structure of the fund. And we do have a full catch-up in that as well. So if you remember when I talked about that 8% with the catch-up, that's what that's what we have in the fund. Yeah. Ben, what's up, man? Ben 
Ben had an amazing podcast episode with me. I'm really grateful. Ben came down to Fort Lauderdale. We did the episode. So if you guys haven't seen that, you should check out what Ben's building and listen to the podcast. That's, that's a little intro for you. What do you think? Thanks, Jake. Appreciate it. Yeah, I really appreciate you doing these too. And, you know, I've, I've raised a small fund and, you know, so I, I know a little bit, but, but got a lot of value out of this. I didn't really know like simple uh, return was on the menu or, or, you know, some other things other than just compounding IRR, which is, which is kind of what, what we did, you know, thinking it was just standard. So yeah, I got a lot of value there. I'm actually, so I, I think I told you the next project I'm trying to build is in South Florida. We're trying to do a tropical landscape resort concept, have some renderings, getting pretty close to going to market uh, with a deal deck. So pretty exciting there. You know, want to get your feedback when when we're done in, in a week or two. I'm actually coming back to Florida February 5th. So it would be good to Perfect. look up. But yeah, I, I have a potential lead investor um, who is in Miami Beach. I met him at the IMN conference that I spoke at. And I mean, he seems great, has an amazing network. You know, he's, he's, you know, very high net worth himself and, you know, can raise a lot of the money, potentially sign for a, a big loan that we need to do the project. And, you know, he wants to be a part of the GP and, and I, I, you know, I get that and I haven't done that before. So I'm just curious if you've ever done that and how you sort of figure out what's, what's fair in that department. Yeah, we, ha- we have done that and we've done it in a variety of ways. And you have to think of like how someone's going to add value to the GP. And you should be very specific about how you're looking for them to add value. Because not knowing who this investor is, I highly doubt that you're looking for him to like identify sites for you or tell you how to build this tropical farm experiential stay concept. That's your sweet spot. So maybe what you're looking for him to do is just give you sage advice and kind of be on an investment committee and, you know, red team certain ideas and concepts that you have. Maybe you're looking for him to sign on a personal guarantee. Maybe you're looking for him to raise capital. You need to be very specific with what the objectives are and then create incentives based on those objectives. Because if you let someone into the GP and you don't make it incentive-based and what they're doing is very kind of loose, then you're potentially just giving up economics and not getting a clear exchange for, for value. Sure, like everyone's smart. It's important to surround yourself with smart people, but you got to think of like what you're giving up and you're potentially giving up real profit. So let me give you a couple examples. So one thing that you could do is you can have this outside person on your investment committee and maybe he's voting, maybe he's non-voting. You should also potentially, if he's going to do that, set very specific requirements. Like you have to be X amount of the fund and you have to raise X amount of capital. And one thing that we've done is basically said, okay, if you want to help raise capital through your network and maybe not pay a promote, you're going to be in the GP, so you're going to invest unpromoted, we will give you, making up, 20% of kind of your pro rata share of the capital that you brought in. So let's just say you, Ben, through your network, you bring in 50% of the capital, you bring this guy into the GP, and you both agree that he's going to be a strategic advisor, sit on your IC, but also he's going to raise 50% of the capital. So you incentivize him and say, okay, if you do raise 50% of the capital, then we'll give you kind of whatever 20% of that pro rata share of the promote ends up being. So 50% is easy. So if you have like $100 a promote, he gets 20% of $50 because he brought in 50% of the capital. You wouldn't have met, had those relationships had it not been for him. The other thing you're going to want is a commitment because it's great to have like an anchor investor to go and tell other people, Hey, this guy, he's on, he's in the deal. He's on our IC and you know, he's made a substantial investment in the fund. And like side note, you want to reduce the amount of money you have to raise. So like make him put his money, money where his mouth is. I think it's important so that, that he feels vested to, to the opportunity. The other thing that you're going to have to think about, which may come up is he might say, hey, I want the ability to participate in all your future funds forever 
forever, whatever you do. And I want to have a piece of those things. Yeah, we, we already we already nixed that. Nix that. Just do a one-off. Do a one-off. You know, see how it goes. And it's certainly going to be tied. We're going to have benchmarks around like capital raising and, you know, debt raising as well. And I'm curious at like a high level, and then I'll let, you know, I'll, I'll let somebody else ask questions. On the, on the debt side, like the other thing you can do is is pay him a guarantee fee. And that's what we've done. Yeah, yeah. Credit enhancement fee, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And we, we, we've talked about that loosely too. So when, when we think about the GP, like, is there any sort of rough breakdown you think about that's like the, let's say, you know, equity and debt raising piece of it versus like the execution piece of it? Is it kind of like 50-50? Is it 60-40? Like, you know, in terms of the the effort and value w- within the GP in terms of, you know, raising capital versus, you know, executing on it? I think, well, I, I think raising capital is typically harder, in my opinion, than raising debt. So right now we're in a very challenging debt environment. So there's certainly something to be said there. But the other thing you have to think about is how will he add value in raising debt? So I'll tell you in hospitality, as you know this, you know, banks are only going to go with an experienced hospitality veteran, particularly in a opportunity like or in a time like this. So if this guy is like a, you know, a tech mogul, then like the banks aren't really going to care that he's on your balance sheet or that he's in the deal because he's not bringing any value or risk mitigation from a hospitality standpoint. If this is the former CEO of Hilton, you know, then they're going to think about that very differently. So you should think about that specifically as well. Yeah, my question is just around with sort of quarterbacking at moments and our natural instinct is, is to have a property co and an operations co. And I was just wondering if you might typically see a, a different waterfall structure between the prop co and op co. Off the top of my head, I feel like the op co would be more risky. So maybe have a slightly higher return than maybe the prop co. In, yeah, interesting. So we tend to structure our deals with an opco and a propco, but it's more for accounting and legal organization and separating the real estate from the operating business. Like it's more of a structuring reason, not for a returns reason or a waterfall reason. However, if you do a deal with like a, a REIT, they basically set up their deals because they need to be separated from the operating business as a lease. So, and, and even there's a, like a REIT called Vici that basically, you know, owns the real estate of a lot of hotels in Vegas and then leases it back to the operators. So it depends what your overall strategy is, but typically we, despite there being an opco and a propco, the opco basically distributes all of its available cash to the propco you know, quarterly or monthly. That's that's how we run it. And there's no distinction. And our promote for being the one, you know, we're vertically integrated. So we're operating the hotel, running the real estate. Our promote is based on the entire performance of the deal. In addition, though, we get a management fee. And sometimes we get an incentive management fee. So maybe that's that's where you're going. And I think it's all negotiable. Incentive management fees are very common in hospitality. And it's basically, you know, you can structure them in a variety of different ways, but it's, you know, that the manager gets a certain amount of the net income over a certain amount. So there's like a hurdle. So maybe, I don't know, over 2 million bucks, the manager gets 10% or something like that. Or if the manager beats budget by 30%, he gets 20% of the excess, like something like that. The objection you're going to get from investors is like, well, you know, your company is the operating company and they're the investment company. So the biggest way to overcome that objection is to have like a big management company and a big investment company be like, yeah, but we're like a real management company and we have to charge fees and structures like everyone else does. And we can't just run it through the whole, whole machine. So it depends what your, you know, objectives are. If you're focused on real estate investment, 
then you know you're going to want to just have it flow to the prop co. But if you're like I don't know, we work or something and you're more focused on the operating business and less on the real estate, then maybe it makes sense to have a structure at the opco. Or or the other thing to think about would be like if you added no value on the real estate. For example, if someone came to you, Freddie, and was like, hey, we have this great like hotel and it's ready to go. We just need you to come in and operate it and take your concept and put it here. Well, then like you really don't have that much involvement in the real estate to start. So maybe you're getting more of an incentive on the operating business. And then if this thing becomes successful, maybe you have a residual incentive in the real estate. But because you came in after this thing was already built and developed, like you have no involvement, whether they overpaid or you know, they did a terrible deal, like your focus is more on the operating side. So I think you'd have to look at that as well. Awesome. Zach. Hey, Jake, how you doing? Nice to meet you. I'm probably new to the group here from Equinox Hospitality. We're a small family hotel company, totally different than the gyms, Equinox, but we own six assets in Dallas that we just bought one last year, north of San Francisco, which we're going to uh, convert to a tribute property within the very brand. But Four points by Sheridan. Uh, I, th- I know that deal. It's like, it's near the water, right? Or can't you see the water? Or? No, it's near the Highway 101, but it's okay. in Bryn County, north of San Francisco. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. Like 235 awesome. rooms. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I just, I just had a question about just the non-cumulative returns because we've never done it that way. So just want to make sure I understand that. So let's say you have like a you know $100 investment, five-year hold, and an 8% prep. Let's say the first three years, you're only earning $2 a year just because you're not performing, not because of COVID or anything. And then the, the fourth year, let's say you, have, you make $10. So you're saying you'll participate in that extra $2, even though the first three years you underperformed? You got it, Zach. 100%. 100%. That's it. And I actually got that structure from a good friend of mine. I don't know. I guess it can't be a secret. I don't want to drop his structure, but they own 50 hotels in California. And that's exactly right. So if you are, you know, taking some time to ramp up and you don't hit your pref, each year stands on its own. And depending on what your overall structure is, you could always go back and say at a capital event, we are going to do you know, true you up so you had an 8% preferred return, you know, compounded or over the life of the investment. Simple or compounded. So basically, you're participating in the cash flows. So you're feeling like in, you're part of the game, you're getting some cash out of it. But at the end, the capital event where the real money theoretically comes in, you're making sure that the capital, the the investors at least got an 8%, you know, simple return. So it's like, if it was five years, 8%, it's like 40%. So you're making sure they at least got 40% before you're participating. So that's a way to kind of catch it up at the end, not to confuse the real catch up that I mentioned, but it's a way to true it up. Hey, Jay, thanks for taking my, my question. Um, I had a, so what's the difference between raising a fund, whether it's for a specific kind of classic class or an area, maybe like the one that you're doing, that you have experience with and raising it for one specific asset. Because I've seen both and raising a fund seems like the most popular avenue that I've seen. And whether no matter which avenue you take, does it impact the capital structure at the end of the day? And when is it the best? When what scenario is the best one to take? Because I'm kind of new to to this industry. I'm in tech, but I want I'm learning as I go along and I found new content. And so this is a question I had. Hopefully you can help me out. Yeah, it's a great question. So I guess let's just start from the basics. The reason why people want to have a fund is because they would have discretionary capital and they don't have to feel the pressure to raise capital deal by deal. And typically in exchange for having discretionary capital, you give up deal economics. So you give up potentially earning a higher promote The other thing about a fund is typically your promote or carried interest is spread throughout a pool of investments. The reasons why investors may like a fund is because they have diversity. If they like the sponsor, they don't have to like worry about picking and choosing deals. They kind of get a diverse pool. 
the the reason to do single asset deals is kind of like a lot of the opposite reasons. It's to make each individual investment stand on its own. So if you have one good and one good investment, one bad investment, you lose on the bad, but you win on the good. In a fund scenario, if you have a, like three good investments and one bad, the bad could be so bad that maybe you don't lose your money, but it really impacts your returns and your promote. So that's one reason to do a single fund. The other reason is because you can't raise a discretionary fund and you need to raise capital because you're starting out or that's just your preference on a deal-by-deal basis where you show investors the deal. When I first founded Dove Hill, I tried to raise a $30 million fund and basically had no track record and I fell flat on my face and everyone was like, hey, we like you, but you know, like show us a deal and then maybe we'll invest, but we're not just gonna invest blindly into the fund. Now that we have a track record, we're able to raise a blind fund, but I think there's still value in raising deal by deal because the other thing you have with a fund is there's a lot of pressure to put out the capital and maybe make a bad deal. But the the terms that you're going to get on a single asset fund are always going to be better than on a discretionary fund. So if you have the ability to raise capital quickly, there's nothing wrong with a single asset fund. You can also run into allocation issues. Just throwing this out there as somebody that's raised a small fund. If you want to start doing bigger deals, you know, usually funds come with in your docs, you're going to have some sort of maximum percentage that any one investment can be. And you know, if you start leveling up and doing bigger deals, you can hit that quicker than you think. 100%. And then you get into a situation where you're raising single deals anyways. So what we did with our fund, our first fund, it was only $15 million, our first discretionary fund. And we ended up doing sidecar investments along the way, which I'm also a big advocate of because it allows you to you know, blend the waterfall structures in the same deal. So for example, you have a pool of discretionary capital, maybe you have a less aggressive waterfall structure in a blended fund where you have discretion, but then you invest alongside a single asset fund that you also raise, which you have a better structure. Now you could say, well, I have, there's a conflict of interest there. The way we get around that is we allow everyone in the fund to co-invest in any sidecar that we do at the same term. So that usually avoids the objections. But in the reality, there's going to be natural natural gatekeepers like what Ben brought up because, you know, in our fund, for example, I think it's 35 or 40%. We can't put more than 40% of the fund in one deal. And maybe you can do it to take down the deal and then you have to syndicate it out later. But you can't, you know, just leave permanently like 40% of the fund in one deal because that takes away the point of having the fund from the investor's mindset because they thought they were going to get some diversification. Got it. It seems like most most actors in the transaction are most aligned with a single asset raising where I see it. Okay. Sounds yeah, good. That's because I think it's easier to do that. Yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah. And a lot of the big institutions raise funds because they can and because they have speed and execution as one of their competitive advantages that they use to, you know, get deals faster than people without a fund. Danny, let's let's go to you. So my question is: Is it advisable to launch DAP funding instead of equity fund? Right now, I think it is, but because I think there's a lot of opportunity on the debt side, and you could do credit deals that have equity-like returns today. So I think that's very interesting. And the other reason why I think it's interesting is because a lot of people you know, can't get debt. So there's a need for, for debt. If you want to read about that, I would suggest Howard Marks, the founder of Oak Tree, writes these quarterly letters. One of them recently was called Sea Change. So Danny, I think you should read Howard Marks' letter, Sea Change. And he talks about like, a credit strategy. The thing I will say though is it's a very crowded space right now and a lot of people are raising capital for that. So maybe you think there's an opportunity to do equity. Kevin, going to you, man. Just a super simple uh, logistical question for managing this, right? On your back end for all of your investors, managing the waterfalls, monthly distributions, the cash sweeps through the operating and all of that. Do you use what specific softwares or just tools do you use to make that easy so it's you know not such a pain every month? Kevin, this is a great question. 
And this is a mistake that I should have identified, but it didn't really exist when I started Dove Hill. So when I started Dove Hill, we used to use Excel for managing distributions and, and waterfalls. Like we would do them in an accounting software, but we would kind of calculate them and compute them in Excel. They're all accurate, but so much opportunity for mistakes. Now everything is for us is in Juniper Square. And Juniper Square has a great platform. You know, I, I'm not sponsored by them, although maybe they should sponsor me now. I've seen their praises for a while. You can set up pretty complicated waterfall structures. But again, for all like the basic waterfall structures, you can have them build you a model, basically a waterfall that'll just work really well. We actually pay them a little bit more money for like a deal administration fee where we just give them the total amount of the distribution. So let's just say it's like $100,000 and we have 20 investors. They figure out based on all the investors' percentage interest, you know, what the waterfall should look like, what each investor should get. They send it to us and then they process the payments. So we've gotten a lot of value out of that because you can always make a mistake, but it's nice to have another party that you can rely on to, you know, check the work and they have it very automated. So the mistakes are less likely. And the other thing I like is investors can track it very easily on a dashboard, which is something that they like to see. I mean, when I was starting, I would do this all manually in Excel and we would get it right. It just, you know, it takes time. Like, we would love quarterly distributions, but we'd also dread it because it's like, you know, a process, especially depending on how many investors you have. Now with Juniper Square, it's like very simple. And then from the sweeping standpoint, from operations to like the ownership entity, we do this every month. And while we are a vertically integrated company, we kind of run it like an institution would. So we don't like to leave the operating entity with just a bunch of cash on their balance sheet, even though they're us. Like we always say, well, they could just spend it. Like they have it. They could somehow it can like leak out. And what we do is we always put in working capital because with hotels, as you know, there's just always going to be a little bit of float with vendor payables. Maybe there's some AR, whatever. So we will take the NOI every month. And basically, if that's, I don't know, a million dollars, we will transfer that from the operating entity once the month is closed into the ownership account. And if you take the NOI, then you're leaving them with the cash, presumably that they need to pay their bills. The thing that you just need to you know, sort out is who's paying the property tax, the insurance. If your property owner is paying that, like that team, then you got to take that money out too. If the kind of hotel operational team is paying that, then you got to leave that money in there. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Ben, I think it's like the last question. Let's close it out with you. Yeah, I appreciate it. I'm just curious, do you ever charge an asset management fee, even a low one for a a syndicate deal or would that only be on a fund? Oh, no. I only... No, that was another mistake I made. I was... I do did deals early on without an asset management fee. And I guess I just thought that, I don't know, we didn't have to pay rent or I didn't have to pay people that work for me or, you know, whatever. Um, I did a whole little podcast on the fees that we charge. So check that out. It was early on, I don't know, maybe 20 or 30 or something like that. But yeah, you have to charge an asset management fee because anyone doing your work of managing the real estate would charge the asset management fee too. Ours is typically 2% of the not the investment value, but the equity. And that's what we use to operate our business. And it's, it is profitable. I mean, I want to run a profitable business, but the way that you get rich in real estate is not through asset management fees, unless you're a Blackstone or a Starwood, I would say. You get, you make money through, you know, promotes and, and winning deals and successful deals. So that's, that's where all the money comes. The, Asset management fees are important. They keep the lights on. They, you know, pay for the business. But the real cherry on top, the real reason why you're in real estate is for the carried interest, the promote. And that's why I wanted to talk about waterfalls today. So thanks for everyone joining. This was a lot of fun. 
hope to do it again. This is kind of spontaneous. So if you're not a member of the hospitality investing community, join. I put the link in the chat. And if you want to get more access to me, just go to jakewarzak.com. There's a couple of different things on there. I think if you use coupon code 2024, there's even a bigger discount we're doing. So it's fun. I like helping out and I like learning from all of you guys as well. So have a great weekend and uh, maybe I'll see you soon. Hey everyone, it's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at jwerzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Wurzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice. Mm-hmm.